Parable Man podcast. My name is Jeremy Pierce, the Parable Man, and uh, I have a guest for this episode. I have Dr. Neil Shenvey, who is uh, a homeschooling dad and a theoretical chemist uh, by by training, um, if not at this point by occupation. Although <laughs> he he has a PhD in theoretical chem theoretical chemistry, uh, he has become known for a number of other things. He had a, a long-standing blog dealing with apologetics questions, and he has recently put together uh, a book that is, uh, is it, who, who's publishing it again? Is it interesting? Crossway. Crossway. Crossway is publishing his book on apologetics coming out of that blog. In recent years, he's become more known for his work on uh, a, a view that he has been calling critical theory. We can actually talk about that term. Uh, later on if we want to, but uh, uh, offering some criticism of it. And uh, that's kind of what has made his name more known in recent years. Your recent work, mm. I will say, has been def defining and thinking through the, the, the work called critical theory that you're calling critical theory. Uh, you, contemporary critical theory is your preferred term for this or was at one point mm -hmm. uh, you've you've kind of in my conversations with you sort of more shifted toward sometimes preferring critical social theory at this point critical social justice is critical the social the justice okay. uses, yeah mm -hmm. critical social justice so let's can we get some kind of definition of what you are referring to by this terminology yeah, so let me just make clear what, what I'm looking at definitely falls under the broad heading of critical theory. I think there's, there's no question that's the case. Um, the, the term itself is very broad. It was coined by the Frankfurt School in the 30s by Horkheimer uh, when it, in his, one of his essays. Uh, and that was 80 years ago. So since then, the discipline of critical theory, it's sort of like talking about epistemology almost or, or feminism, right? When you talk about feminism, you're like, well, what kind? Because there's the first wave, second wave, third wave, intersectional feminism, right? So, so there, there's gender critical feminism. So clearly feminism is a, a big umbrella category, and yet it has something in common between all these branches of feminism. So in the same way, critical theory is a broad category today, and it encompasses a lot of different fields. Uh, so if you actually look at the literature, you'll find people you know, agreeing that say critical race theory, critical pedagogy, critical legal studies, uh, queer theory. They are all forms of critical theory or critical social theories, they're often called. Uh, so they fall into this category. But what I am focusing on is its contemporary manifestation today. So what do you see in our culture today from writers like Robin DiAngelo, Ibram X. Kendi, uh, Patricia Hill Collins, uh, I mean, very uh, popularizers like uh, Edo Lodge or Sayad. So there, there are all these authors who are writing uh, often on race or on gender or on sexuality, who are adopting the same framework, the same set of ideas. And what do we call that? Well, no one knows what to call that. This is actually a debate among often critics because they themselves don't have a, a label. 
They'll just talk about, they'll just talk about race. They'll talk about gender. They'll talk about sexuality, but they won't say, oh, we're doing now, we're doing gender th critical theory. They're not going to say that. They'll just talk about, they're doing gender theory. We're doing race theory. Um, and yet you see the same assumptions that are underlying their entire discussion. And if you want to know, um, so, uh, if you want to see a historical analysis of where these ideas have evolved, um, Lindsay and Pluckrose's book, Cynical Theories, actually does a good job of describing the evolution of these ideas in the last, say, 40 or 50 years. Uh, I think they do a good job. Um, anyway, but the bottom line is it's been called, this ideology has been called critical theory, cultural Marxism, intersectionality. It's been called grievance studies. Uh, D'Angelo uses the term critical social justice. And I think that actually is the, the best term because she's clearly has this in mind, these, these ideas, but she's really just one author. So if you Google critical social justice, I think I've only seen D'Angelo use that term. So it's a great term, but if you use that term, they'll say, let's just D'Angelo. So my big point is this, call it whatever you want. You can call it cultural Marxism, you can call it intersectionality, you can call it contemporary critical theory like I do, but I wanna focus on the ideas themselves, not the label we use to describe them. Right. So now, don't 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 um, uh, Lindsay and Pluckrose call it something similar to that? Don't they call it critical social? In the, yeah, so actually, justice that's, or critical it's so funny theory? because yeah, so in that book, they tend to refer to it as either um, theory with a capital T, or social justice with a capital S, capital J, or they call it reified postmodernism. That's their term, I think. Um, but lately. If you talk to Helen or James, they, they say, yeah, actually critical social justice is the term that we probably, probably should have used because it so perfectly encapsulates okay. this ideology. But again, it's not common. And so I think right. they only discovered it after they'd written yeah. most of the book. And so they didn't right. use it. But yeah, if really, you look yeah. at their stuff online, it's all, that's the term they're using now. But it, yeah, but as far right. as I know, it is D'Angelo's, I think it's D'Angelo's, it's, it's used in the book, Is Everyone Really Equal by Sensoy and D'Angelo. They coined that, I think they coined the term. And so I don't know how broadly it's accepted. I've never, so I have not seen it anywhere else in you know, all my 10,000 plus pages of reading. I see only that term only is being used by Simpson and D'Angelo, but it's a great term. So I'm happy to use that. But really, I, get, I, I really get frustrated when people want to talk about the terms and the labels rather than the ideas, because you can call it whatever you want, but it still means the same thing. Yeah, and I, I find that people get distracted by that because they think, the fact that you've chosen this term to use shows that you must have some certain ulterior motive, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or that you don't understand something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. I'll, I'll, I'll call it, you know, I'll call it, uh, I'll call it, I'll call it anything you want. I want to talk about the ideas. Right. So we have this, um, I mean, obviously there's, there's critical theory, the sort of discipline. Mm -hmm. And then there's the ideas that are put forward, the claims that are being made within that discipline that almost everyone who does it holds to. Yes. That's the thing. So just, I mean, within feminism, obviously you're gonna find differences. Um, if you think of feminism as a discipline, like I, 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 someone who would say, I do feminist theory. epistemology, yeah, or feminist sure. mm -hmm. theory or feminist uh, ethics or something like that. Uh, what is it that makes it feminist? Well, there's something in there that's core to that, right? Exactly. And, yeah. and it's, got, it's got to do with women's equality or women's um, inclusion or women's uh, value or something about women uh, 
not having been and wanting now to be uh, something, right? Yeah. But then there's disagreements on what that's going to look like. Sure. Yep. Pretty strong disagreements about what that's going to look like mm -hmm. to, to the point where my PhD supervisor, who is probably one of the most uh, substantial uh, contributors to feminist theory today mm -hmm. and, and to race theory today, uh, it, 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 within philosophy anyway, uh, says that there isn't anything called feminism. It's feminisms. Feminism. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what she says. And, and, uh, and I think that's just as true with all the other ones, all the other divisions within, uh, if you want to call it critical social theory or critical social justice or critical theory, whatever you want to, whatever term you want to use. But obviously there's something that the term refers to. Sure. But the, there's multiple things that the term can refer to. Yeah. And that can lead to confusion. And every conversation I've ever had with you suggests to me that you know all that, you are aware of all that. And I see people criticizing you and thinking that you don't because right. you're using terms that they use in a way that's slightly different than what you're using. And in my and, talks and my writing, I actually even say exactly that. I say there are many different critical social theories, but they share a certain common anchor points, right? Uh, you know, and especially today, I, and actually in an article that I is coming out for Thumelios, um, probably next month, it's a, I did a review of cynical theories. And in that review, uh, I, I actually, I, I point out how Lindsay and Pluckrose realized that too. And they point out how all of these different critical social theories that have proliferated in the last 50 years have actually coalesced within an intersectional framework. So the point is, yes, there are many critical social theories historically, but in the last 10 years, just, just last 10 years, um, you've seen all of these critical social theories look very similar. Uh, they have different focuses, but they're under, the fundamental assumptions are very similar because of the idea of intersectionality, which basically says you can't just talk about race without talking about gender, sexuality, class, physical ability. You can't just talk about class without talking about race and gender. So if you accept that idea, which was I, the idea goes back farther, but the term intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a critical race theorist, in 1989, that idea really unified these fields. And that's what produced in, in what Lindsay and Pluckrose call reified postmodernism, or maybe applied postmodernism, depending on which phase you're looking at. But um, yeah, that, that, that's why I think when you talk about contemporary critical theory, you're just really talking about one set of ideas. It's shared. And I, I've talked to grad students and, and professors who are in English and post-colonial theory and in feminist theory. And they all will say, oh yeah, we learned all of this stuff. We didn't call it critical theory, but the assumptions driving say sociology, the assumptions driving English liter literature, uh, at least that, that they learned were, oh, uh, obviously they, these, these were these unstated assumptions when we talked about anything. Um, so we can talk about what the assumptions are, but they, they are shared by a lot of fields today. Right. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's right. There are a number of assumptions that are shared by many, many fields, or at least sub-disciplines within those fields. I mean, I wouldn't say they're shared by everyone in philosophy, oh, but yeah, they're yeah. shared by people, by most of the people in philosophy hmm. working within the, the, the disciplines that deal with race and gender and class and sexuality and, and, and so on. Yeah. So um, at this point, um, I'm not so concerned about the terminology either, like you. I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about the ideas. I'm always one to go for more precision and, and getting, getting a careful explanation of what claims you're talking about 
and whether they're true or not, what kinds of reasons you could say to, to argue for them or for or against them. Sure. So uh, let's see if we can get to some specific claims that, that we find that are out there. And, and I think at, before we even do that, I think I will say that from reading your stuff, what you've written about this, there are a number of specific claims that are made within this broad category that you and I would both agree with. Mm-hmm. There are a number of them that you and I would both disagree with. Mm-hmm. And there are probably a few that we disagree on. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably fair to say. So, uh, so how would you characterize the major claims that are made within critical theory or critical social justice or whatever you want to call it? So uh, I usually use four, four major claims. And again, there is a sense in which I probably would, like you, I like I love precision. I mean, you're an analytic philosopher and I like analytic philosophy. So we share that desire for precision. So I would argue that probably uh, all four of these claims are in some sense true, in some sense. So that's, that's so I can, I'm going to qualify that. But what I'm going to say is this, in the sense in which they're intended to be interpreted, they're false. That makes sense. Okay. So Christians can, Christians can look at these claims and say, I can kind of see why that might be true. But we got to be careful because when you say they might be true, what you mean is I can incorporate, I can, I can view them for, through a Christian lens and find some truth in these claims but when you do that, you're taking them out of their natural habitat. They're not intended to be read that way. So let me give you the four claims. And now you think you'll see what I'm saying. So the first claim is the claim that there exists a social binary. So society is divided along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, age. That's like a direct quote from D'Angelo and Sensoy. Um, and they so basically divide groups into oppressor groups and oppressed groups along all these different axes. Uh, of, of, well, at least axes, identity axes. Um, so is that claim true? Well, you can look at things like, um, you know, wealth. What's the median wealth of say white, the white demographic group versus all non-white demographic groups. And if you, dis- you disaggregate the data that way, in some sense, there's a binary, I guess, like whites on average have much more wealth than non-whites on average or the, on median. So Christians will hear that and will say, well, yeah, there's kind of this binary, but you have to understand that when critical social theorists say that, they don't mean that on average, there's this sense in which some groups have more wealth and power than others. They're saying you, you can label one group oppressors, the other group oppressed. One group has power, one group is without power. One group is the, they call it the agent group or the dominant group. And one group is the subordinate or a marginalized group. So they're not just looking at data and saying, yeah, okay, sure, fair enough. It's like saying, are men taller than women? Yeah, well, on average, men are taller than women. They're saying there's a tall group, men, and a short group, women. It's a very different statement than what, so when you say, I can kind of see that, it's like, well, be careful because they're saying all men, all whites, all heterosexuals, all rich people, all physically abled people are in this dominant oppressor group, or sorry, in, in those dominant oppressor groups. And then all the other people are in these marginalized, oppressed, uh, subordinate groups. That's number one. Uh, Number two would be the idea that oppression occurs not just through tyranny and coercion and violence, but through what they call hegemonic power. Uh, Hegemonic power means the power of your group to impose its values on culture. So that, so they wouldn't say, they don't, they don't say that you are a minority because you have fewer people in your group. They call those groups minoritized because they have 
they are subjugated by hegemonic power. So for example, they would say the reason that people of color are marginalized or oppressed is not primarily because they actually lack power in, in, a, in a broad sense. I mean, clearly some people of color have lots of power, but they would say the norms, the values of our culture are white norms and white values. And so whites have hegemonic power to control the, our discourse. So when we talk about things, when we think about things, those are all the white discourses and that makes all whites oppressive. And people of color are all therefore oppressed because they are all subjugated underneath this white discourse. Um, so again, when you hear things like, uh, you know, oppression is not just cruelty and violence, it's also these subtle ways in which uh, ways of thinking are, are, dominant, are, are, are imposed on people by the ruling class. Is that true in some sense? Well, yeah, think about how our standards of beauty or sexuality are imposed on us by Hollywood or Madison Avenue. That's, that's a real thing. And right. yet, so you could say, uh, Christian, yeah, I can kind of see that. But again, that's, that's not what they're saying. They're saying the very way you think about things like objectivity, logic, evidence, are actually white Eurocentric masculine norms that need to be called into question. They're not just saying, well, our, our, our media is saturated with say sexu sexual images. They're saying much more than that, which is the very idea of say logic or evidence is somehow tainted by Western imperialism. Okay, anyway, I'll stop there. Any, any questions so far about what I've said? So you've had two- Just two, yeah. The first so two. So on the first one, the social binary thing. So. I, I think you would agree with me that there are people who are much more careful about this and people who are less more careful about this, right? So, and, and in analytic philosophy, they tend to be more careful. Yeah. So I'm, I'm rubbing shoulders with people who are more careful about things like this. They're, they're a lot less willing to make the mistake of saying that since more, more men are, more, are taller than more women, uh, that men are the tall group and women are the, the short group. Uh, they're willing to be much more. I mean, in fact, intersectionality requires you not to say that, right? The whole point of intersectionality is that our identities are multifarious. Yes. And uh, so you're going to have people like uh, Hillary Clinton, say, who is a woman, but has lots of social and economic power compared with uh, a random steel worker. Yeah, right? Ra yeah random. Yeah. Right, right, right. Or, or even even a, a random upper class stay at home mom sure, <laughs> or yeah. something like that, right? And so they'll they'll be more fine tuned, more precise mm -hmm. in how they say things. But nevertheless, there will be this element of they, they will talk about the oppressor class, yeah. And they will talk about and and they'll say that even women like Hillary Clinton are oppressed because the standards of masculinity and femininity that are socially constructed in our society will mm -hmm. still apply to her. And right. that's in fact, correct. Yeah. And you can see that, you can see evidence of that, people who made fun of the way she dressed while she mm -hmm. was first lady, while she was in the Senate and so on. Uh, that, that, there were far more conversations about that for her than there were for men. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because there's something right about what they're saying, right? Yeah. And yet I, what I would say is that when you use the word oppression, you, and it actually, if you find, if you look at, um, I think, is it Marilyn Fry? Someone has an essay called Five Faces of Oppression. Yeah, that's, she, that's Mar Iris Marion Young, isn't it? Oh, that's Young. Yeah, no, you're right. It's right. It's Young, yeah. What Young actually admits that they have redefined the word oppression. So you're right that in a sense that Hillary Clinton experiences 
um, stereotypes on the basis of her, of her gender, right? That, that men wouldn't experience negative ones, right? So we can say that, sure. But I would say, does that mean she's oppressed? Or say, here's a good example I use, Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey is probably a billionaire. I mean, she, the kind of power she wields is tremendous. Does it make any sense to say that Oprah Winfrey is a oppressed in any reasonable definition of that term? I'd say no. She experiences certain stereotypes, yes, but a billionaire who literally could buy me a, a you know a thousand times over with her wealth, you know, buy everything I own. She is not, and, and to say that she is oppressed, and yet in some sense a poor white homeless person is not oppressed. Right now, they would say, "Well, he's oppressed because he's homeless." But what I'm, my point is, like, you could have but, some objective right, scale of, race. of oppression. Yeah, they would yeah. they would want to parse that out and say, "Well, he's oppressed because of his class, but not because of his race." But I would say, "Well, using the word oppression objectively to describe an absolute sense of oppression, that that that's it's it's ridiculous, and you're really equivocating when you call someone like Oprah oppressed because there's a sense in which oppression is an absolute scale from deeply oppressed." Like a, you know, a, a slave or a, a sex slave today, regardless of race or gender, is oppressed. Whereas a extremely highly educated wealthy person is not oppressed, regardless of race and gender. So I think that's a better way to think about oppression, in terms of what my my collaborator Pat Sawyer calls phenomenology. I mean, that's not he calls it, but he points at phenomenology. Your day to day experience is what really determines whether you are objectively oppressed. If you are walking around with agency and money and power and free time and leisure, then you're not oppressed, uh, or at least not in any significant sense. Whereas if you are walking around and you, you are controlled, you have no agency, you are you know abused, you're treated cruelly on a day-to-day -day basis, then you are oppressed regardless of your race, class, gender, et cetera. So I think that's where they, and they have this element of truth. Okay, I can kind of see that, but I, the way they extrapolate or the way they apply that to these broad categories, I think is very misleading. And it's the, the word oppression that's the real trouble there. Yeah, yeah. Really? Well, and it's, more, it's more than that because the, it's the word oppression, but if we just change that word to some other negative word, it's, it's you know, Oprah Winfrey say, right? So say that she experiences stereotypes Okay, maybe, but those stereotypes will be so far outweighed by the fact that she's literally a billionaire with millions of fans. I, th those stereotypes may exist, but they're they're like a you know they're like a buzzing of a fly for Oprah. They ought to be. In the same way, you know, a person who is actually a, a white male who is a sex slave, right? Uh, th the fact that they happen to belong to dominant groups, whatever you want to call that, though they have positive stereotypes around them. It means nothing to their day-to-day -day experience. It's, it's less than meaningless. Tell, tell a sex, a, male, a white male sex slave who's heterosexual, well, you have a lot of privilege because you're white male and heterosexual. They'll look at you like you're crazy and they should because it's less than nothing to say to a sex slave that, well, but you have this privilege. Again, so the point is they're seeing yeah. everything into I mean, these group categories. It's, it's not really relevant. They, they might comparatively to a a black someone, woman someone sex else who's in the same situation yeah. as them yeah and so there's something again there's something that's being said there that's right yeah but it's it's sort of here's how it comes across to me like when you see christians today saying in the united states they are oppressed and yeah. persecuted persecuted that's yeah. the word right that's the word i was talking about persecuted because people laugh at them yeah <laughs> because of their faith 
or they think they have an odious view because they're opposed to same-sex marriage or something like that. And they thought mm. they call that persecution. Well, there's some degree of truth to that, I guess, yeah, right? Re relatively speaking. But when sure. you compare that to the kinds of persecutions that have occurred in the history of the world and that occur right now, people who are executed for their faith, it just doesn't even compare. Like, why are you using that word? That's not the right word. Sure. So, uh, I mean, to the extent that you are made fun of because of your faith, okay, I mean, Jesus said, you will be looked down on and treated as an outsider because yeah. of me. Mm -hmm. And that happens to Christians in the United States and to some degree, yes, but it's nothing like what people who were thrown before lions had to sure. experience or people in the Soviet Union who, who, who were told to renounce their faith and were put, yeah. put in jail for the rest of their life. Or it's a good analogy. Fell, right? Yeah, and it's a good so analogy. Th there's a phenomenon that happens on the right that people on the left like to make fun of and complain about. Yeah. And then they do the same thing with the word oppression. Right. It really is a very similar phenomenon. Yeah. And neither side, can, well, both sides will complain about the other side doing it. And they don't mm -hmm. see that they're doing it. It's a matter of recognition of, of, of the moral seriousness of something. Yeah. And, and they, they don't see that using such a serious term as oppression for something that's relatively insignificant for someone like Oprah uh, is offensive. Yeah. And yet they will see that Franklin Graham complaining that Christians are being being persecuted and oppressed. Uh, they'll see that that's a joke when he says that. Yeah. But they won't see that it's a joke when Oprah says it. And and it just it just strikes me as as not having any sense of balance and an understanding of of the seriousness of, of, of what's being claimed. Yeah. There are some serious things that happen with race and with gender and so on. And, and to say that Oprah experiences them well, there's something right about that, but it's it's going way too far to call it oppression, in my view. Yeah. So so the Iris Marian Young view of oppression, I think, is a mistake. Right. Which yeah, which she defines as something you can identify as something that's really there. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's right to call it oppression in yeah. some of those cases. And and what's more, it's not just semantics because uh, the way that they so it is. I mean, yeah, the word oppression is the wrong word, but what flows from that 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 using the word oppression from that. Uh, it's not just the fact that we'll use a different word. No, because they want you to modify your behavior. That's the big thing. So regardless of what they call it, they could call it, uh, they could call it privilege, they could call it oppression, they could call it marginalization. But the consequences that they want you to draw, the inference they want you to draw from whatever they are calling that phenomenon are radically change your life. Actually, we should get the other tenants here. But the fourth tenant I mentioned is social justice. So uh, what they want you to do is they want our whole... Uh, you know, existence to be reoriented around social justice, which to them means overturning the social binary to uproot and dismantle structures of oppression. So that's sort of this, I guess, third tenet here is that when they say that someone, some group is oppressed or marginalized or subordinate, that the, the response they want to evoke in you is to dismantle these oppressive structures, these oppressive norms, this hegemonic power. So now they could say, well, okay, fine, Jeremy, we'll call it, uh, we'll call it subordination or marginalization or even unfair stereotypes. But the, the response they want to elicit is we need to dismantle white supremacy. We need to dismantle the patriarchy. We need to dismantle heteronormativity. So it's not just semantics is what they want to do in response to those, this, this phenomenon, which often is radical. It would be, you know, we see this today. And I mean, Again, this is a kind of extreme example in some ways, but the movement to abolish the police, 
you know, some people said, well, they don't, some people really mean that. They literally mean no more policing of any kind. Some people mean we need to, you know, divert funds from police training to social work. Some people mean we need to reform the justice system. All that gets labeled under, under this heading of Right. That, uh, yeah, they all mean different things by it. Right. But there were these sanctuary zones during those, those when the riots were happening and all that. Where they protests. literally had no police. Protests yeah. and riots were, were both going on, right? Some of them were peaceful protests and riots. But they had these zones that people sort of roped off and said, no police allowed. Yeah. And they were they were trying to police everything sort of themselves. And Which we, it, normal people call anarchy, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> right. That's the thing. It was anarchy. Yeah. And it, it was, it was, it was, and, and there were people who lived in those zones who were complaining that they couldn't get the police to help them. Yeah, yeah. So, went, but in the same way, when people say we need to achieve, we need to dismantle, we need to smash the patriarchy, right? They, they might say women are oppressed because of the patriarchy, but if they, they, they say, okay, fine, Jeremy, we'll call it women are stereotyped because of the patriarchy, but they still want you to dismantle it. So it's not just the word they use, it's the actions they recommend. They want you to tear down these so-called masculine values. Now, what are those masculine values? That's the problem. They'll throw all kinds of crazy things into that under that label, uh, or white supremacy. White supremacy is not just about thinking of the white race is superior. It's now about things like, I kid you not, uh, math, uh, objective rational linear thinking, uh, cause and effect relationships. Those are all put under the category of white or whiteness. And then they want you to dismantle those things. And that's crazy. But that it all it all makes sense within their ideology, which says, well, all those are forms of oppression. Um, and then I guess the third, the final point that they bring in is lived experience, the idea that uh, we people that are privileged in these privileged groups tend to be blinded by their privilege; they can't see reality as it actually is. They tend to ignore injustice, whereas subordinated groups, marginalized groups, oppressed groups. Are actually have the ability to transcend or to see through these hegemonic discourses and see reality as it actually is and they can see their oppression and therefore we should defer to them we should say you know what is the view from the margins what's the view from the bottom how can we look to the margins to inform us what the truth is about our society so that's again that's the idea that lived experience has this epistemological value now again is there some talked about this is there some truth to that does your lived experience, even lived experience as, say, a white man or a black woman or a half Indian theoretical chemist, does that give you some unique insights? Well, yeah, it does, right? But it's not, first of all, it's not just that uh, minoritized groups have those insights from their lived experience. So do dominant groups. You know, being a man gives me unique insight into things like what it means to be a man. My experiences will inform that in a way that a woman might not know those things. Being a white person, being physically abled, all of those things will give me unique experiences, and those can help me to see different facets of reality. So that's so it's one thing is it's very asymmetric. They would say, no, it doesn't. Those actually those attributes blind you, whereas marginalized attributes actually give you the second sight or, or double consciousness. So they don't see the symmetry, which actually is there. Um, and the other thing is that um, they tend, they don't necessarily absolutize this, but they tend to um, make these claims of marginalized groups very hard to challenge. So if you say to someone, you know, you're thinking wrongly about this empirical fact, they'll say, oh, you say that because of your power and privilege. Of course, you'd say that you're a white male. So they dismiss you not because you're not appealing to 
evidence or reason or logic, they'll dismiss you because they have the correct identity status and you don't. So that's obviously another major problem with this view is not only do you not have any insight because of your whiteness or your masculinity, you also can be dismissed because of those very factors, which would both say that, that's not right. I mean, when I've seen people talk that way on Twitter, say, yeah, they it's 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 often not people from those groups either. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they'll they'll also say that, oh, because you're well, they say they say it to you. They say you're a white man. <laughs> Look at my beard. Look, this, right? is, this is this is that's some Indian heritage right there. This is this is right. like only a month or anyway. But yeah. they'll, but they'll, but but I mean, I've seen white women say to you, yeah, because you're a white man, <laughs> you, right? They and and that kind of thing, and they're not they're not acknowledging their own epistemic lack Location. of access from right. being white, yeah. mm -hmm. but they're they're acting like like you do have that. Mm -hmm. But but it's it's I mean it's I think we need to distinguish again between the people who are more careful about this, people who are less careful about this. I, I, in my experience within analytic philosophy people who do standpoint epistemology who will, who will, who will talk about this, these kinds of issues. Some of them are much more careful than others, yeah. but they tend to be very, I mean, when I say things like, aren't, aren't there cases where I, as a white man, have access to something that, that someone who, who's not a white man doesn't have access to, they'll say, yeah, it's good to, it's good to, um, I mean, this is how my PhD supervisor talks. Yeah. It, it, I, I appreciate your complexifying it. <laughs> That's what she'll say. Yeah, and then she'll say, um, at the same time, there's this much greater tendency to be in one way rather than the other. Mm -hmm. And and I'll say, okay, sure, but there's a lot of people who don't even want to acknowledge that it sometimes goes the other way. Sure. Yeah. And and, and that seems accurate about even a lot of the analytic philosophers. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I have a real. I have a real desire someday when I have time right now I'm teaching as an adjunct faculty member because uh, of my life situation I've got five kids two of them have disabilities we can't just go take one year jobs here and there which is what it takes to get a tenure track job these days so I've been teaching as an adjunct teaching five six classes every semester and I just can't get any writing done but one of these days I'd like to put something together about standpoint epistemology about how much more complex it has to be if intersectionality is correct. Yeah. If intersectionality is correct, then I have all these other identities and they pick out the certain ones that they're interested in, that they're interested in and they don't acknowledge other ones. Being a, an evangelical Christian in academia makes me by their definition oppressed in that setting. Yeah. And, and they don't see that a lot. Well, of no, 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 no. There's a reason they don't see that. So this is the thing. And this is, this is something they, they really get wrong with privilege because they talk about privilege and oppression as if they're absolutes, at least across a culture. So they will say whites are privileged and people of color are, are oppressed. And they're looking at culture in the aggregate. But that is nonsense. Because like you pointed out, this is all contextual. You know, a, a, right. a white person is not privilege living in you know the heart right. of an of a 99 black neighborhood they right. might be teased actually i know people who've said that yeah. i was growing i grew up in like an all black you know neighborhood and i was teased for being white in the same way a christian living in bible belt you know in the you know some rural texas is privileged but a christian living in you know manhattan is not privileged they're going to experience a lot of quote unquote you know quote unquote oppression uh, in the sense that they'll be treated unfairly, there'll be there'll be stereotypes. So I, I totally agree, Jeremy. And actually, to her credit, it's amazing. The only time I've ever seen anyone acknowledge 
that privilege is contextual is believe it or not, Robin DiAngelo in her book is ever, uh, sorry, in her book, What Does It Mean to Be White? She has a short paragraph, but it's there where she says, okay, well, there is some sense in which these things can vary from, you know, place to place, which is, that's, about, that's the only time I've ever seen someone acknowledge that. And she's, as we agree, she's wholeheartedly endorsing the, all these ideas, but she recognizes, yeah, okay, it's not it's that simple, but the thing to keep in mind is that all of these critical theories flowed out of a political program. They all are, they're all praxis oriented. They want to promote activism. So when you say they're not willing to acknowledge the sense in which say as an evangelical Christian, I might have some insight that they, they lack teaching at progressive universities. Well, why don't they acknowledge that? It's not because there's, you know, ignorant in a sense, or, or just dumb. Uh, it's because it doesn't further their political program of liberation. Not, not, that's not pejorative. I'm just saying the way they think about rationality, the way they think about objectivity is very much practice oriented. They, their goal is to liberate the oppressed and therefore they will pick out certain observations that help them towards that end. And that's not really inconsistent because that's the whole point of their project. <laughs> They've always said explicitly, we use these tools to achieve liberation we're not as concerned about consistency, right? That's not really a major category of thinking for them. Which I, I think, think the, yeah, the analytic at, yeah. philosophers would, would push back against that. Yeah, they, they, well, they hopefully, would. hopefully. They, they would. would, most yeah. of them would. The ones yeah. that I rub shoulders with all the time would. So, I mean, I'm like, yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, I think with, with some of these people that we're talking about here, you could present, I mean, George Yancey has, I think he's already got his book out now about, uh, Christians in Academia, right? Is that out of oh, book he? form? Oh, he's published he several it, yeah. articles about it. I know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, demonstrating that there really is a severe, severe prejudice and I mean, looking down on people, thinking that they're they're not welcome, making discriminatory decisions in hiring among academics. And I've seen it firsthand, and I've heard about it directly from other people too. Uh, I, I just remember Dean Zimmerman is one of the best analytic philosophers in the world. Oh yeah, he yeah, teaches Rutgers, at yeah. Rutgers, which is one of the top departments there. He's a friend of mine. Uh, he's a, he's an evangelical Christian of yeah. a Pentecostal variety, you know, the Vineyard, um, and 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 everyone thinks he's wonderful. But mm -hmm. I remember when we hired him at Syracuse when I was a grad student there. Uh, our department decided to hire him, and one of the grad students, the first thought was, "I can't believe they hired a Christian." And yeah, it doesn't been, matter how good he is. He's a Christian. Yeah, yeah. There have been studies. There's a funny, by the, I have a funny story about Dean Zimmerman. Uh, but uh, there's studies. Yeah, like George cites them, but Heterodox Academy has shown like there's study after study where they just show they're not just explicit. So some people you ask them, would you discriminate against an evangelical Christian? They say yes. It's like a third of they just, professors just outright admit it. <laughs> outright say yeah. I would not. Yeah. I would. I would not, not want to hire a Christian. Person. Whereas if you yeah. do more subtle surveys that try to probe the people that won't admit it, it's really, it's more like half. So, so yeah. it's between, so a third will just outright say, I would not want to hire a Christian or evangelical Christian, but, but even if there's obviously more people who just hide it and would do it subtly. Um, yeah. Okay. Brief aside for, this is a funny story about Dean Zimmerman. <laughs> I, 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 when I was writing my book, I got an analogy from the problem of evil from a, another philosopher um, named Paul Manada. And he said, actually, I heard that, that analogy from Dean Zimmerman. So I wanted to cite him. So I emailed Dean and I said, have you, did you come up with this analogy? Is it in, a, in a, an article somewhere that I can use? Um, and he, I, I said, 
Paul heard it from you at a conference philosophy. You were sitting in the hallway at like 3 a.m. playing the guitar. And he, he wrote back and said, man, I, 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 he's like, I don't remember that at all. But, but man, it sounds like be sure, go ahead and use it. He was like, <laughs> like man, it's all blurred, but sure, okay. It was a really funny email. It was a great analogy, by the way. But anyway, but that's a funny, just yeah. totally, I didn't know who he was at all until I emailed him. But, uh, yeah, well, D Dean is one of those very long process thinkers like it takes him a really long time to come up with stuff yeah and then when he publishes it it's amazingly perfect <laughs> it just it just takes so he's not he's not very quick yeah with thinking about objections and that kind of thing so it doesn't surprise me that that his memory is not great with precise details anyway so, but but yeah, so the, the final work he produces is always absolutely excellent yeah um those are the four basic tenets so you have social binary uh oppression through hegemonic power uh, social justice and lived experience. And those, like, it's like we said, we've agreed, there's parts of those things that are true. And that's, what I always point out, these ideas wouldn't be so pernicious if they weren't partially true. No one believes pure lies. Like if you just walk around saying two plus two equals eight and the sky is green, people just ignore you. So they clothe these ultimately false ideas. They capture some elements of truth and that's what makes them plausible. And so I think if we don't acknowledge those truths, we'll actually, one, we'll show we don't understand what we're talking about. But two, we won't, we won't understand how these ideas get a hold on people, right? So it's like a, you study, actually Danny Aiken mentioned this in a talk. He said, you study a virus to know how it works so you can take it apart. If you don't understand that virus, how it works, you can't create a vaccine. So in the same way, we want to understand these ideas, not, not merely because we want to, a vaccine, but also because some of them, some of these are true, they, they're, they're illuminating truths. But I think ultimately, this, when you put them all together, it's very destructive. I mean, everybody agrees that what we're seeing in culture today, you know, based on these ideas, is very harmful. And because it's based on the entirely false way of viewing reality. So I wanted to come back to, to one point. The, the, the first let's just review what the points are quickly so social binary social binary is the first one second oppression one is, through ideology oppression through hegemonic power. okay oppression through hegemonic oppression power. through ideas basically um the third one social justice that's a goal the end goal which they oh, define, the end goal is they right. define that and the, the, the key is this people say social justice that's a good goal well they don't mean it like you might they, they mean they mean the elimination of all forms of social injustice which are based on race, class, gender, sexuality, that's from Mary McClintock. So, you know, they don't, when they define social justice, they mean that. They don't mean the end goal should be a, a, you know, a society in which everyone gets what they deserve, which is what Christians might mean by that term, but they don't mean that. They mean a society which has no more, in which power is shared between formerly oppressed and formerly oppressed groups, where there's no one dominant hegemonic discourse, unless it's theirs, <laughs> unless it's theirs, of course, unless it's theirs. Uh, but in which all these other discourses of masculinity and femininity and heterosexuality and uh, gender binaries, all those discourses are dismantled. That's, that's, that's their end goal. So that's the third one. And then, and then the fourth one is lived experience. The idea that our lived experience, uh, the lived experience of marginalized groups gives them special access to truths. So the, the epistemology. Right. epistemology yeah. So, so uh, a, so the, classic standpoint epistemology, which started with just feminism, yeah. and it started with just philosophy of science, actually, <laughs> uh, feminist philosophy of science, was saying that within science, there are ways of doing things that are male, yeah. and men can't see that they're doing it, yeah. but women can, can point to it and say, here, here's why we shouldn't do it that way, right? 
And it's not just things like, who are we going to hire? Are we not recognizing women's credentials as, as, as equally good as men's when they have the same degree and so on, mm-hmm. the same experience? Or, or even recognizing that women have a harder time getting the same experience and therefore you're being unfair, unfair to them when you, when you hire based on experience. But things like the way that women reason about things is different than the way that yeah. men reason about things. And, and to some extent, that's true, to some extent. Uh, but, uh, and, and so therefore, to some extent, maybe there are ways that we should alter our, our ways that we do science mm. to allow for different forms of reasoning and so on. I'm not opposed to that in theory. But the, a lot of the particular claims that f- feminist standpoint epistemology was making, there's this, um, again, there's different versions of this. There, there are several different views that are out there that are all called standpoint epistemology. Hmm. But you have the, the the most radical version of it is just outright relativism. Yeah, and and you find that today, in in among now it's not just feminism; it's with all of these. You hmm. will find that, and it is an accurate characterization of the way some people do this. Yeah. However, uh, I mean, it's basically saying, well, there's the men's way of doing it, and women's way of doing it, and so on. But standpoint epistemology falls apart completely if you take that too seriously. Sure. So most of them are not actually outright relativists. What they want to do is privilege the unprivileged, yes. right? And so they'll say women's ways of coming to understand the world are more advantaged than men's in terms of getting to the truth mm-hmm. because women live in the male world and they can see things outside of that. Right. It's in, that double consciousness. That's so back to, yeah. double consciousness. Yeah. Right. And that's much older than standpoint. Of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That goes way, way back. It's so and that's usually yeah. in the context of race that that has come up. Yeah. So was it Fanon or was it before? No, that? Du Bois that actually du Bois. coined the that's term. Du Bois. Yeah. That's right. Du Bois coined that term. Mm. So the double consciousness that Du Bois is talking about is racial. Yeah. So he would say that, that people who are black or African-American have an insight to things because they can see both the white person's way of doing things and they have been able to step outside that and see what's limited about that and well, so therefore they because they can compare the two they have privileged access to to seeing the truth yeah the, so the passage in du bois that says that it's, it's it's disputed what he meant it's not clear that he meant that but it doesn't matter but the, the idea that's at how least it's taken term, now it's taken now yes but it's yeah. The question is, well, did he mean that? It's not clear to me that he meant that, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, it definitely is taken that way now. And definitely it's, that, that, that idea goes back to Marx too. Marx also the idea of false consciousness and not double consciousness, but false yeah, consciousness. That's false consciousness, right. So this idea goes, it's, you know, it's definitely has many different sources. Um, but like you said, it's it's been adopted by feminist epistemologists. And yeah, I keep, one right. of the problems I have with Christian, especially Christian apologists, is they, they see all of this stuff as just postmodernism. But I keep, and so they, they assume that standpoint epistemology is just relativism, right? And I keep trying to tell them, no, it's not. It's not. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's falls apart if it's relativism. Exactly. If it's yeah. just that everyone has their truth, well, that's not what they're saying. They're saying there is a truth, and that's why we should privilege women, because they right. have better access to it. So right. it really falls apart if it's pure relativism. So again, apologists tend to say, they can't we just say, you know, if someone says, well, this is my truth, and can't you just say, well, you know, my truth is that your truth is wrong. You, they'll just say, no, you're wrong because you're a white male. So they think they can play that sort of jujitsu, that, that you know, the judo, they turn it against the claim, but, but no, you can't because it's not relativism. They're claiming something else, which is that 
there is an objective truth and that certain people have better access to it. Um, and yeah, so anyway, yeah, it's just, but it's a common misunderstanding. And I think when I analyze that claim, it's again, it's one of those things where I think, well, there's something right about that. Yeah. But it's, it's being absolutized in a way that seems false to me. So what's right about it is, yes, if you are able to experience two worlds, mm -hmm. two ways of thinking, two ways of running the world, two ways of talking about the world, thinking about the world, you can see from both of those perspectives. And that allows you to sort out which one is more accurate to reality. I understand that. And there are things that those who are more marginalized or whatever, the categories they're going to call oppressed, mm. uh, are, are able to pick up on. But the problem is when you absolutize it, again, this goes back to the whole, if you really take intersectionality seriously, then my identity as an evangelical Christian in academia is by their standards oppressed. And there are things mm. that I'm going to pick up on that they won't. Right. And uh, you can't absolutize these, these categories then. Because I'm going to see the ways that Christians in academia are mistreated. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and, and I will see that the ways that, I mean, that the, not just, I mean, there's others too. I mean, conservatives, right? Yeah. So I, I, I've had countless conversations when I've sat among people who expect me to be like-minded with them. Mm -hmm. And they'll just say insulting things about things that are important to me. And, and they won't realize that they're insulting me because they just expect everyone around them is like them. Sure. So it's, it's, uh, that's exactly the sort of thing that happens that they're pointing out with the groups that they're pointing to, but there's other groups that it happens to and they don't even see it because they're blinded by their identities. Yeah. Their identities that are, that are within their circles, the majority. It's the same exact phenomenon and they just can't see that they're doing it too. Well, and the, but the other thing too is that um, I think there are a lot of problems with the standpoint epistemology. One is, that, is when, it's, when it's absolutized, but also when it um it prioritizes groups over experience like we talked about before like an individual yeah the fact that oprah is a black woman i mean it's, it's i don't know if oprah has kids i think she has kids but you know oprah's kids right do not have what they interpret to be the black experience in the way in the way that you know if we if we want to absolutize that kind of thing they're oprah's kids that 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 identity being oprah's child trumps all other identities. And so to go to them and say, what's what's the black experience like? They're Oprah's kids. They probably don't know. They don't know what the white experience is like. They don't know what the male or female experience is like. They're Oprah's kids. That That is so much bigger a factor in their experience of life than being black or white or male or female. And so that's one thing. So the, the, the role of individual experience, and the same way, put it the other way, if I am a, a, a two people who are both white, male, heterosexual, whatever, but if one grew up in an abusive household and the other grew up in a wonderful household and they're both 30 now, it doesn't make sense. And there's no really category for abuse, you know, abused identity group. It's not really a category, but they're going to have extremely different ways of seeing the world potentially, but that doesn't fall into, it doesn't map into any identity category, right? So they miss that totally. That, that, that point of individual experiences being very relevant to how we see the world. The other thing they miss out on a lot is the fact that we actually have the ability to reflect on our beliefs and our way of seeing the world and change them almost really rapidly. So for example, I've talked to you know, white conservatives uh, about race, say, and you know, according to some epistemology, they don't see certain things. But when I simply show them data 
about, say, uh, hiring studies, so studies showing racial discrimination in hiring or in housing or in the death penalty. When I show them the data, a, flip go a switch goes off and they're like, oh, I never noticed that. Good point. So sampled epistemology really downplays our ability to be have our minds changed by reason and, and logic. We don't need to belong to that, that group to see their way of thinking. It, we really can have our minds changed by simply being exposed to evidence and different viewpoints. They want to say it's all about your lived experience. And I'm saying, no, actually, you can have your, you can, you can from opinions based on evidence and reason and logic, that it's, it's just as powerful as having this gut innate consciousness that you're born or you're socialized into. So there are a lot of problems with, and again, I don't think you know, philosophers would deny that, but certainly non- most of the people that are doing this kind of stuff are not philosophers and not or not analytic philosophers. They're social scientists, they're you know, cultural theorists. And so they, they are not nearly as precise and they sort of gloss over all of these objections. Um, so I think, and they just don't even aware of necessarily. So I would say even then, while there are truths captured by standpoint epistemology, there are a lot of things they leave out that are pretty important. And that's the experience that I have whenever I read this stuff, even by the analytic philosophers sometimes. Yeah. I, just, I just like, okay, what you're saying is pretty much right, but I want to feel, find myself qualifying it at every step. Yeah, and it's yeah. so frequent at every step. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's I, it's it's rare that I read a paper by people who are working on these questions that I don't have at least a couple times on every page. Yeah, when I'm thinking, I would qualify that. I would qualify that. Yeah. I would qualify that. It's just it's just the the tendency, even by analytic philosophers, to say such broad statements without without really taking into account the complexities of it. It, it, it annoys my sensibilities as an analytic philosopher yep. so much that I don't know how it doesn't annoy theirs. Well, so okay, mind blown because critical social justice is a hegemonic discourse in our culture. It, it well, is, yeah, it is. It is oh, a yeah. dominant discourse that is, is, it has totally in, it has suffused our, not our thinking, but the thinking of academia. They yeah. don't realize it's there. This so my friend Taimon Klein, who's a JD and Div guy who knows, who reads a lot about critical race theory. He's a because he's, he's a lawyer, but he was saying if anything can, is conv convinces me of the idea of hegemonic power, it's the hegemonic power of this critical social justice narrative in our culture. Because of all the things that would convince me, that's the best evidence that it's taken over the minds of all of our elite institutions. And that's why they don't see it. They are they are the blinded ruling class, whereas we are the ones who have insight into their uh, failings because we are the marginalized evangelical Christians. Of course, I don't view it that way. But the point is, it's ironic that the very things they're claiming are true about other categories are really true of them. But as an aside point. Yeah, but again, it's contextualized. If you yeah, go to the yeah. Bible Belt, if you go to the evangelical Absolutely. institutions, right, you're not going to see it to the same degree or even at all. And some of them, they're flatly opposed to it in ways that don't understand it, get it wrong, misrepresent it, and so on. But uh, a lot of the most influential institutions that we have in the United States are thoroughly immersed in that narrative. And uh, to the point where if you were to say out loud at many colleges that you think a trans man is a, is, is a woman, yeah, you could get in big trouble for that. Yeah. And, and uh, that's a, I think that's a controversial question that could be debated. That's a question of metaphysics. It's a question of what the word man means, what the word woman means. 
And I think it's an, it's an open question that should be debated whether the man, woman, the, the word man, the word woman refers to something biological, something socially constructed, something that's purely the gender identity that's felt by that person or something that they express. Those are four different things. Yeah, and yeah. no one gets into that debate. No one wants to get into that debate these days. There was just a study po posted a few days ago. I tweeted it out. But the, one of the findings they were talking about um, uh, academic freedom and basically, basically the extent to which uh, conservatives were discriminated against in academia. But one of the findings, they, this is a, a large survey about, I think a thousand, more than that, 1500 academics in the US, UK, Canada. The, one of the findings was this, only 28% of American and Canadian academics would feel comfortable having lunch with someone who opposes the idea of trans women accessing women's shelters. So the question was, should trans women, it's biological men, who have identity identified as women, should they be allowed into women's homeless shelters? And 28% of only 28% of academics, so 72% so of academics would not have lunch with someone who opposed that idea. So 20% would, would, would be, but 20, 72% would not want to have lunch with you if you didn't want to let trans women access women's shelters. So that shows you that. That's a dominant discourse, right? I mean, it's not right. only to say it's wrong, but you wouldn't even have lunch with someone who right. it's right. right. That's yeah. crazy. That's just one finding in this large study. So yeah, most academics will have lunch with people who disagree with them. Oh, I mean, they yeah. do it all the time. Yeah, right. So I just showing you how about rapidly important questions. Carl they Truman has a great book called "The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self." He's a historian, a Presbyterian professor at Grove City College, but he his book is phenomenal. Uh, but he talks about uh, how these I this social we call the social imaginary, meaning 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 the set the, the the our mental landscape, the way we think about things, um, how it's come to be uh, what it is today. How, so how he asks, how does the question, um, can't you know can't how, uh, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body? How does that statement come to make sense to us? He said a hundred years ago, if you'd said I'm a Women trapped in a man's body, or vice versa, people will just stare at you. Says, how do they come to that? Comes to be not only commonplace, but if you deny that, you're a pariah. So he has a, this book outlines the history. It actually is very. It's not, not really critical. It's just showing the history. Um, but the last section of the book is on critical theory and on how sexuality became politicized, and that's why today you have people not just affirming that statement, but saying if you deny it. We have to cancel you. It's absolutely outside, of, and it's only happening in, in well, it's eight not years. Even if you deny it, it's not even if you deny it. Gina Carano got canceled for question because she made a joke, yeah, about her personal pronouns because yeah. she thought it was kind of silly that cis people would list their pronouns because their pronouns are kind of obvious. Yeah. And then when Pedro Pascal, her coworker, took her aside and said, "Look, I have a trans sibling. Here's why it's important to them that cis people say their." She said, "Oh, I totally get that. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it." And she took it down and apologized. Mm -hmm. They still canceled her. Yeah. So, I mean, there's other things she did. She said some, she agreed with, with some of the things Trump was saying about the election. Yeah. But I think that was really the thing that, that did it yeah. more than anything else. I don't think it was the other stuff. So, I mean, it was, it was not that, I mean, even someone who's, who temporarily made a joke that, that she then apologized for was yeah. sufficient to have people think she's this awful evil person. That, that's hegemonic power, man. That, that's what they're pointing to, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know how you could see it otherwise. <laughs> yeah, right.
that's the thing. So yeah, hegemonic power is more it's contextualized. Yeah. It's not, you can't just say, well, the majority of Americans this, therefore there's no hegemonic power now the other way. It's, it's not yeah. like that. Mm. It's much more complex. And, and um, I think it takes those of us who are kind of on the fringes in, in settings where our dominant groups might be less, not so dominant to, to see things like that. So, I mean, obviously, I don't know. There, there, there's, it's more complicated than, than any of this, really, mm -hmm. in my view. But so I, I think there's a, there's a, I think there's a way to say all four of those things that you're pointing to. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are careful about it and don't go too far with, with most of them. So how, 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 I guess, how, when you list all the four of them, I can see how someone would look at them and say, okay, why are you objecting to that? Yeah. But it's not so much the precise correctness of those that you're disagreeing with. There are things about all of them that you agree are true. But at the same time, I think there's, there, there really is, uh, some of this is just, I mean, there's the academic level versus the popular level. Mm -hmm. The academic level, they do tend to be more careful. Mm -hmm. than on the popular level. On the popular level, people are a lot less precise and they say more toxic things. But even among the academics, you're gonna find the people who say really toxic things that, 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 are, that are alienating mm -hmm. and not productive in having a real conversation because people hear them the way those words are ordinarily used. Yeah. And white supremacy is not ordinarily used and it's changing. That's changing. Yeah. But to a lot of Americans, they hear the word white supremacy and they think the KKK. Right. They think uh, today it would be the riots at, uh, where was that school? Wait, Evergreen? Been no, Evergreen no, 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 no. The riots by white supremacists. Oh, uh, is it Lynchburg? And it was, uh... Uh, one of the schools named after a president, Jefferson, Washington Jefferson or... In other words, maybe founded by a president. Was it the University of Virginia? Maybe it was the University of Virginia. There was, there was one at Charlottesville with Charlottesville. Tiki Torches. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. That's never, the one. Okay, okay, not the university. Like they, they, think, they think that kind of thing. Yeah, right. But they're not thinking math. Certainly not math, but they're not even thinking white supremacy is things like favoring uh, people who have more money when you give them loans. Right, or, or right? You know, st standard English grammar, right? What's considered to be normal sure. English grammar, right? right? Which right, you, right, right. you can make, you can make an argument. I mean, I think the argument's saying that, yeah, some of our English proper grammar is kind of arbitrary. Okay, I get that. But calling it white supremacy to, to score spelling, you know, to create spelling and to correct spelling, that's white supremacy. Well, that's, no, <laughs> you're, you're confusing very different things there. Um, and so, yeah, things like that is where people really get confused, but even if they weren't confused, it would still be, you're begging the question whether these are bad things. Like, we shouldn't correct spelling. There is a way to spell things. If everyone spelled however they felt like, you couldn't communicate. So you have to have some standards and you can't, so one, you have to have them. And number two, you can't call those standards white supremacy. In fact, it's kind of insulting to people who are not white and who can still spell. So properly so anyway that there's a lot yeah there's a lot there but it's, I'm, I'm trying to show this there is a misunderstanding level 
So we should try to clear up misunderstandings. But then beyond that, there's a fundamental disagreement about ideology. Like some people really believe that spelling is oppressive, for example. Um, and so we would want to say, no, even that's wrong. Or spelling, you know, having objective standards to, for spelling is harmful and we should change that. Whereas I would say, no, <laughs> we have to have standards for spelling and grammar and math. And we can talk about, can we, you know, loosen them or make them, you know, make it, make it easier for people who, who don't come from a, um, you know, a background where they hear proper, proper grammar every day. Can we make it help, easier for them to communicate? Should we talk about that? We can't operate yeah, or put, from the assumption. Or, or put structures in place so that they can, I mean, the, the question is, is there a point to proper standard English? Yeah. And, 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 and the point to it is not, let's have a way to distinguish between upper classes and lower classes. Right. Class is really the issue there, not race. Right, yeah, yeah. It's not yes. race, it's class. So yeah. calling it racist is missing the point. It's classist, if anything, right? Not racist. So uh, does it happen to be that racial lines and class lines somewhat correspond? Sure, but it's not race, it's class really in mm -hmm. this case. Um, now, now, is there a dialect that African-American or black people in the United States tend to speak if they grow up in the inner city? Sure. But that's, that's, it's not really that that standard English is supposed to be contrasting with, because mm. there's just as much variation with white working class people compared with, 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 with uh, middle class or upper middle class people, right? So if, if anything, it's classist, not racist. Yeah. But what's the point of having a standard English? Is it important to be clear about what we mean? Right. I'm teaching logic. I, I, I regularly teach logic. There's a difference between both not and not both. Mm. Both not is right, both of these things are not true, mm -hmm. meaning they're both false. Not both means they can't both be true at the same time, but one of them could be true. Either one of them could be true, right? Those are different. And when we have proper punctuation and word order and things like that, grammar matters because yeah. you have to distinguish between th those two things. Those two things mean different things. And if you're gonna teach logic or if you're gonna do philosophy, you're gonna think carefully about ideas. You need to be clear about what you mean or people are gonna misunderstand you. There is a point to standard English because it, it makes it, it, there's clear rules about what's, what something means. Mm -hmm. So when we have an ambiguity in our language, it's important to try to be clear about that. That's important. Here's something that's not important in my view. I don't know if you're gonna agree with me with this, but in my view, here's something that's not important. Demonstrating your educational level by showing that you are using proper English <laughs> in order to, to look better for people. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't care about that. I, I, I don't care about ain't, I don't mm -hmm. use it. It's not how I grew up talking. My parents told me not to use ain't, so I never, I never learned it. I don't care about that though, because it's clear what it means. But I, I, and I'm not going to take points off when I someone's hands in a philosophy paper that says ain't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I just don't care about that. But if they're going to say something that's unclear, I do care about that, and, and I'll try to get them to be more precise in their language. Is that white? I, I, that's it's ridiculous to think that that's white. Well, I don't know how it, anyone could possibly think that's white. Oh, people do, but I know they do, that, but I don't know how they could. It's, they don't see it. The funny thing is, they don't see that as insulting. Like they, that's, 
John McWhorter and Greg Lowry are really good on this topic because they keep pointing out when you, you think you're being progressive, but you're being deeply offensive when you're like, well, blacks are disadvantaged because they can't speak properly. They're just like, they're both black men. They're just like, that is appalling. You think that, that blacks can't speak proper English, that, mm -hmm. that they, they really feel the strong that this is, you know, actually what, what's passing is progressivism is really uh, the very least like incredibly demeaning stereotypes about black people. Yeah, it's, it's, kind of, it's like when Biden said, when Obama was running for president, <laughs> Biden said, the reason white people are voting for Obama is because he's clean and articulate. Yeah. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what he said. He's clean and articulate. And Al Sharpton said, that's offensive. Are you mm -hmm. saying I'm not clean? Are yeah. you saying I'm not articulate? Now, there's a sense in which Obama is far more articulate than anyone, right? He's, yeah. he's very, very, very well-spoken. And, and, it gives, and he's an, an incredibly powerful as a public speaker. I, who have zero interest in public speaking, don't see that. I don't experience that. I hear him give a speech and I listen to the content and I think that's the same as any other politician. Mm. But people who pay attention to those things, I'm not one of them, see him as a powerful speaker. And uh, rather than, than look into the ideas, they'll think, oh, he did a great job with the speech <laughs> because yeah. he's so good at it compared with someone like George W. Bush who stumbles over his words when he's reading a speech. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, when they're speaking off the cuff, Bush is the one with the advantage. Bush is the one who makes people feel comfortable. Obama is off-putting. So just, I mean, to be even-handed about it, they both struggle with something there, right? Obama couldn't, couldn't give a speech to save his life if he had to do it from memory. Or right, Bush could just talk and people would feel like he knows what he's, like, like he's saying something, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's a kind of intelligence, Bush is often treated as unintelligent, but there's a kind of intelligence he has at being able to read people and talk to them and make them feel like he cares about them. Mm. Bill Clinton has both skills, but, but Reagan had both skills too. Mm -hmm. But uh, so Obama, there's a kind of, when people say Obama is articulate, I think, okay, I, I know what you mean by that, but it's regularly seen as off-putting when yeah. you say of a black man that he's articulate mm -hmm. because the implication is, most black people aren't. Mm -hmm. And that's why that was offensive to, to Al Sharpton. Now, I don't think I don't think Biden even meant clean. I think he meant clean cut. Mm -hmm. And by clean cut, he meant he is. He dresses in suits and he, he dresses you know, in suits, <laughs> which Al Sharpton also does. Yeah. Right. Al Sharpton yeah, but, wears very expensive suits. But there's a sense of I, I'm not clean cut. Like, I, so, yeah, I get I get the both sides of the discussion. I, I think that the, what we should cut, you know, what Christian should come down on is saying, we want to acknowledge that there is this. So take the four things as a whole, the four statements, the four tenets of critical theory as a whole. We can affirm that in some sense, we see that there's truths that are being expressed in these statements. But in the sense in which they're intended by, by, the, by the majority of people espousing these statements, right? they are false. And now here's an example I'd give. It's a, can a Christian affirm, I, this is actually a debate in you know, the Middle East, but Christians in the Middle East sometimes will say they, they should be allowed to, to affirm the Shahada, which is the, the Islamic confession. There is no God, but God and Muhammad is his prophet. Right. They'll say that out loud because if they don't say that out loud, they'll be killed. But they're right. Christians. They say, well, when I say there's no God, but God, I mean God the Father. There's no God, but God the Father. The, Deuteronomy says that. Right. And the word prophet. Allah, the word Allah is just the word right. for God. And right? prophet, but, I mean, prophets right. can be like, you know, someone's a prophet because they speak truth to power and Muhammad did that. So I'm going to call, I'm going to say, he's I think it's true that 
in, in that the way sense. that Martin Luther King was prophetic. There you go, right. Yeah. He's prophetic, spoke yeah. prophetically. So Muslim, so Christians in the Middle East are, you know, have debates over whether they can say the Shahada to avoid being killed. Here's right. the problem. Now, ignore that, ignore that discussion. Forget that. Here's the, the question for me is if I ask me, is the Shahada, there's no God but God, Muhammad is his prophet. Is that true? In one sense, we can say yes, there's no God but God, sure. And Muhammad spoke prophetically, I guess, you know, Medina and in, so in that sense, he's a prophet. But look, the way it's taken by Muslims is totally false. So at the very least, if I'm gonna, I'm not gonna say things like, yeah, it's true. I'm gonna say it's false. If you ask me, well, isn't there a sense in which it's true? I say, well, in a sense, but not the sense in which it's intended. So in the same way, all these statements I laid out for you, and I can give you quotes, it's tempting for Christians to want to not make waves by saying, well, it's kind of true that, you know, that women are oppressed or that blacks are oppressed. It's kind of true. But at the very least, what to say, but not in the sense in which it's intended here. Again, I would just say, frankly, and this is getting me in trouble maybe, but women and Blacks and LGBTQ people in this country are not oppressed as a group. As a, are there Black people who are oppressed? Yeah, of course there are. There are individuals who are oppressed. There are whites that are oppressed. There are and large numbers of them collectively, perhaps even. Yes, but, but would that be is that a, a responsible statement to make of Blacks as a class of a group at 45 million people in the US. They all walk around day to day experiencing cruel and unjust treatment or control. That's what the definition of oppression is in the dictionary. And I would say, no, they don't. Some do, but as a group, to say that they are oppressed as a group or women as a group or LGBTQ people as a group are oppressed, I'm saying the traditional understanding would be that they are denied agency, they're being treated cruelly, they're experiencing it. And that's just not true. And actually, you can find older writings. There's actually a good book by Thabiti Anyabwile from 2016, where he talks about the dangers of flattening the Black experience to one of victimhood and oppression. He said, that's not true anymore. It was true in 1820, but, but it was less true in, 18, in 1920. And so much less true in 2020. So I think we should be very careful in 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 affirming that these statements are true in the terms in which they're stated the way they're intended. That's, that's, that they're actually false in their own terms. So the, the, the speaker meaning. Yeah, the speaker. As opposed right. to the public understanding. I mean, I, the public understanding is kind of divided at this point. That's exactly right. I think that, about 50% of the United States hears it the way they intend it. Unfortunately. And about 50% would, would hear it the way that you and I would probably use right. the word oppressed. But I also argue, so. like in my talks, I'd point out that it's not, language isn't neutral. Like, for example, if I say, if half the US decides that the word women can be used of anyone who itself identifies as a woman, period, uh, even me, if I just say today, I'm a woman for five minutes, if we decide that collectively, I would still argue against that understanding because the word woman, the sure, a string of, of concept of sounds is arbitrary, but there's a biblical category that is trying to be captured by the word woman. And so I don't want to erase that category. It's very dangerous. That, that will actually impede our understanding of the truth. In the same way, there's a biblical yeah. category for oppression. There's a biblical category for justice. Now, if you want to call it shmustice or shmoppression. Right, you could always just say, hey, I'm going to use a different word for the biblical you category. But, but you could always very... do that. But there's also this historical connection between our terminology and those historic understandings. Exactly. That you'd be, you'd be denying or you'd be saying, 
we shouldn't we shouldn't let our language reflect that right so, so obviously words change their meaning over time they what do. plato meant by justice is not what people today mean by right. justice and so on uh does that mean we need a different word for plato's use of the word justice maybe i mean i just use the word morality because i think that's sure. closer to what plato meant by justice so okay. i when i when I, I tell my students when plato says justice and your translation says justice think morality because yeah. that's what he means. He doesn't mean what we call justice today. Right now, we're in this word intermediate zone where, like you said, half the U.S. is using it in these, uh, I think, I think, critical social justice ways, the, all these terms. The other half is completely confused. But I'm not just arguing, well, we should communicate better. I'm arguing this social justice approach to these words is, is full of unbiblical presuppositions. We can't adopt that whole way of talking and thinking. But the way you talk affects the way you think. You're thinking in certain categories all the time. And the language you're using is reflecting those categories in the, and the, which supposedly reflect reality. And my argument is always these categories are just wrong. <laughs> so we have to, now again, I, if you want to use a, it's like the whole argument about critical theories versus critical social justice versus critical race theory versus intersectionality. It's not the words I care about. It's part, but it's mainly the ideas they express. And those ideas are rotten, at least in the sense they're intended. And that's why I push back against the words. Again, there might come a point where I have to give up saying we shouldn't define racism as prejudice plus power. Because one day, all the dictionaries will say racism equals prejudice plus power. And I'll have to use a different argument. But, but I'm saying for now, while there's dispute, I want to push back and say the concept of racism is basically partiality based on race. And that's a sin. But this definition of racism they're using, <clears throat> that the anti-racists are using is bad for the following reasons. And yeah, so right now I can rely on the dictionary, but eventually, uh, but I think, change. I, I think the fact that half of the population in the United States can't hear the word used that way, like yeah. it doesn't sound like that's the word, they're misusing the word, is, is an important enough reason to be much more careful in how you say things. Right. Yeah, so and, I, and no one is doing that. No yeah, one I, is doing that. Well, I try They'll to just do that. use the word racism as if it means this systemic thing. Yeah. And, and people who don't get that are then left thinking, what? Why am I being accused of being racist for this? Because yeah. they mean something very different by racism. And it's never really explained to them. Not, yeah. not never, but it's frequently Rarely. not. Yeah. It's frequently not. So yeah, I have to, Jerry, I have to go. I'm taking yeah, my kids I have to, to go too. So. House, but yeah, you have a class or something, right? Yeah, I have a class right now. Okay, right, <laughs> so I got to get going. So yeah. Good talking to you, man. Yeah, thank you for talking with me. My um, pleasure. All right. Bye. Right, bye.